DeSantis luring a bunch of immigrants, refugees, in fact, from Texas to Florida in order to pull off this stunt of sending them to Martha's Vineyard. The obvious thing the Democrats should have said is, these are refugees from socialism. These are refugees from Venezuela. It's like, and you call yourself an anti-socialist, you're making victims double victims. But I don't think there is the mindset in the Democratic Party to make that kind of differentiation. And now, The Good Fight with Yasha Monk. The natural thing to talk about in my little spiel this week is the midterms in the United States. But I just had a really lively conversation with Ed, and many of my views, many of my points are expressed in that conversation. So I just want to take a minute to put this midterm election in the broader context of where I think we now stand in terms of a battle between democracy and authoritarian populism. And the answer to that, it seems to me, is that the threat from these populist forces continues. That candidates like the over 200 election deniers who just won high office in the United States will continue to be a part of the politics of most democracies for the coming years and perhaps in a permanent way. But as we have seen with Donald Trump's defeat in 2020, with Jair Bolsonaro's defeat in Brazil a few weeks ago, and with a significant underperformance of MAGA-aligned candidates in battleground states like Georgia, like Pennsylvania, and beyond, is that they do not enjoy the support of a majority of a population. And as long as other political parties run on a moderate platform and oppose those candidates effectively, they will not win majorities. In other words, we are now in the new normal of the fight over democratic institutions. They will remain embattled, they will remain threatened, but this is a fight that defenders of democracies can win if they play their cards right. My guest today is an old friend of a podcast, Edward Luce. Ed is the chief U.S. commentator and columnist for the Financial Times based in Washington, D.C. He is also the author of three books, including most recently, The Retreat of Western Liberalism. This has been an eventful week in American politics. And of course, we are talking about the midterms in the United States, how to interpret the outcome of the election, what it tells us about popular appetite for candidates who undermine basic democratic institutions or the lack thereof, how it sets the country up for the 2024 elections, whether it puts Ron DeSantis in pole position to take on Donald Trump for the Republican nomination, and what Democrats need to do in order to defeat Donald Trump or a Trump-aligned candidate in 2024, if it comes to that. Ed was kindly recording this in his natural habitat, 
which is to say from an airport lounge on the way to a conference. So the audio is a little bit suboptimal, but it was a really great conversation, which helped orient me after this eventful week. Ed Luce, welcome back to the podcast. Delighted to be with you, Jan. Ed, I feel like you're always extremely good at the 10,000-foot view. So forgetting questions about who's going to win this outstanding race, who's going to win that outstanding race. What do you think are the big takeaways from the midterm elections for the state of America and for its implications for the world beyond America? For the state of America, I mean, it's actually been a pretty good week. I think the democracy angst recedes a little bit. And to that degree, the angst of America's partners and allies is probably a little bit under better control after Tuesday than before. Because as you remember, this talk of a red wave, a red tsunami that had been building up, quite sort of feeding on itself and sort of crystallizing as a, a media consensus that wasn't really backed up by all the numbers, had spilt over into genuine worries internationally amongst America's partners and almost sort of borderline hysteria, oh, Trump is going to be re-elected in 2024. So the fact that the media only had the second worst night on Tuesday night, the first worst was Donald Trump, is I think going to renew some degree of hope that there might be continuity or a possibility of continuity, not just for the next two years in terms of Biden's foreign policy on Ukraine and transatlantically, but in terms of the American democratic model not being in as deep a state of dysfunction or not as quite as close to the abyss as we were fearing here in America, but also around the world. Yeah, I think one of the really interesting pieces of news is when you look at election deniers in the midterms. A lot of them got elected. Many of the extreme MAGA crowd did very well in the primaries. And when they were running in safe districts and when they were running in uh, deep red states, many of them did win elections. But when they were in purple states, they often lost. And there was a real contrast between how more moderate Republicans fared in places like Georgia and Pennsylvania and how more extreme Republicans fared in concurrent races in those same states. And so it feels to me like one of the lessons of this election does seem to be, hey, Trump has a super fans, he always had, he will for a long time. But even among traditional Republican voters, there are a lot of people who feel like this is enough. Yeah, and if you look at independence, independence swung very much in that direction. It wasn't just traditional Republican voters. They were very discriminating between the type of Republican candidate on offer. And, and that's now backed up by quite a lot of data and exit polling data in the last three days. So Tim Michels, the Republican gov gubernatorial candidate for Wisconsin, had said notoriously two weeks ago that if he wins the governorship of Wisconsin, Republicans will never lose an election there again. They'll never lose an election there again. And it was very clear what he meant by that. There would be a supermajority in the Wisconsin legislature, and he would change the election rules to such a degree that Democrats would be made into a minority party. He lost very comprehensively. Don Baldock, a former army guy, really in the sort of mold of Mike Flynn, somebody who's sort of lost any semblance of military discipline when his uniform came off. 
uber-Trumpian. He lost very, very comfortably to Senator San in New Hampshire. Pennsylvania, the place where Trump invested most of his time in terms of the rallies that he attended and in terms of the social media, the truth socials that he would tweet out, as it were, was a wipeout of Trumpian candidates. Dr. Oz for the Senate, Doug Mastriano for the governorship. And it's looking more likely than not, although I might get bitten bit in the ass by a news flash halfway through this podcast, but it's looking more likely than not that um, Kerry Lake, the Arizona gubernatorial candidate, will probably lose to Katie Hobbs, the Democratic one, again, for similar reasons. I should sort of point out, and I think you probably picked this up too, that the fact that Paul Pelosi, the Speaker's husband, was assaulted in his own home at 2 a.m. by a deranged MAGA guy with a hammer, fractured skull, ends up in the ICU. And the leading Republicans like Trump not only didn't condemn the attack, but actually made a mockery of Pelosi, used the attack to mock her. And Curry Lake was another example of that. She had this famous smirk when she made a joke about it. The fact that that happened in the last few days before the midterms, as I think something we in the sort of more full-time professional political watching classes probably don't fully appreciate because we're paying attention 365 days a year. Most voters only really pay attention in the last few days. And this was a, an extremely dissonant response that I think, you know, regardless of your ideology, unless you are really hardcore, would create feelings of sympathy rather than mockery. And I don't think we should underestimate the role of elements like that in what happened on Tuesday night. There was a sort of decency theme to it. That's a really interesting point. One of the things that always strikes me is that many highly educated people have quite negative views of the average person and have quite negative views of uh, the extent to which people care about things like decency. And that's understandable when you look at some of the candidates who've won election in the last five or six years, right? I mean, I see why people jump from if Donald Trump can win, how good can the average person be? But I do think that seeing, you know, the husband of a speaker of the House of Representatives attacked in that kind of way um, and politicians laughing about it, making jokes about it, even seemingly kind of celebrating it is repulsive to most people, including most people who are very conservative, including most people who have traditionally voted for the Republican Party. I suppose I'm trying to think of how this might be good news for democracy. I mean, one way is simply that we're seeing with these instances of split ticket voting, with uh, the failure of some of the most Trump-aligned candidates, that the appetite simply isn't there. That this idea that Trump is this guaranteed vote winner, that there's this you know, real appetite among the breadth of the American population for Trump-like candidates, has just turned out to be wrong, right? Moderate Republicans, very traditional Republicans, some very conservative Republicans, but ones that respect the basic rules of the democratic games, just are much stronger candidates than Trump win Republicans. And that's a good sign for the future. I guess there's also a more specific thing that I wanted to ask you about, because to me, the nightmare scenario for the last two years was, you know, what happens if Democrats win a narrow majority of the vote in Pennsylvania, but there's a Republican governor, which says actually there was some amount of fraud and I'm going to discount a bunch of Democratic vote and send a Republican slate of electors to the Electoral College. And that was the only circumstance in which I could have imagined actual civil war, not the sort of some amount of political violence which people label civil war in a way, you know, in an attempt to sell books and confuse people, but actual civil war. Because in those circumstances, you could have imagined different branches 
of the armed forces coming to different conclusions as to who the legitimately elected commander-in-chief is. And I always thought there was a very small likelihood, but it was something that kept me up at night. With the victory of moderate candidates in Pennsylvania, in Wisconsin, in a bunch of other places, in the gubernatorial elections, in some places in the Secretary of State elections, that danger seems to have subsided very significantly. There's this asterisk on Arizona in case Carrie Lake somehow managed to pull through. But effectively, in all of the states that seem like plausible swing states in 2024, there's now going to be people in charge who would not put up with that. Do you share that sense of relief? I do. And the one state that very clearly has returned a Republican governor um, is Georgia, which is um, Governor Brian Kemp. And Governor Brian Kemp last time around did the right thing. He didn't bend to Trump's will. He backed up his Secretary of State, also just re-elected, Brad Raffensperger. The other four states, namely Arizona, Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania, three of them have Democratic governors now. Evers, Tony Evers re-elected in, in Wisconsin, Gretchen Whitmer re-elected in Michigan, and in Pennsylvania, Shapiro beating Mastriano. And we have yet to see in Arizona, but as I say, I think that's tilting towards the Democratic candidate. I might be wrong, though. So that really sort of removes at least four out of five of the states in terms terms of conceivable individual state legislature theory skullduggery. And, and we can get into that theory if you like. But yes, a sense of relief. I mean, I should also mention you highlighted Pennsylvania. It's not just that Dr. Oz and Doug Mastriano lost. It's that John Fetterman won the Senate race. John Fetterman had a stroke. He was a little bit like Paul Pelosi and Nancy Pelosi was mocked or sort of satirized for her husband's attack. He was mocked for his linguistic defects following the stroke, his problems with communicating. And I think, you know, we all saw this through a cold Politico lens. But from what I understand from people who live in Pennsylvania, there was a great deal of admiration for his tenacity. It's very difficult to fear or hate somebody like that, who's clearly a decent person, struggling with their own issues. But maybe that would, instead of making you think, oh, they're going to be completely incompetent, it might make you think, oh, they will be sympathetic to my struggles. And I sort of feel something of that with Biden versus Trump. Biden has very low approval ratings. And by any measure, you know, ought to have um, lost these midterms. Usually there's a linkage between the two. But as others have pointed out, extremely hard to hate Biden. Even if you have deep disapproval of him, even if you think he's got dementia, even if you think he's incompetent and completely inarticulate, you can't really hate him or fear him. Whereas the near 60% of America that dislikes Trump, they really dislike Trump and they really fear him. Yeah, and something that polls always have trouble getting at is intensity. So I think you're right that a lot of people are saying, do you like Donald Trump? No, I don't like Donald Trump. He's a terrible human being who was an awful president. Do you think that Joe Biden is doing a good job? No, I don't think he's doing a good job. I think he's weak. Uh, some people might think that he's senile. But that's a very different level of intensity. That's not that asshole, you know. He needs to get out of office tomorrow. That feels plausible to me. I mean, the other distinction I've seen in some polls, which seems interesting to me, is that when you ask people about the ideology of a Republican Party and the ideology of a Democratic Party, 
they think that each of those is very extreme and very far away from where they are. I think there's a distinction between those. But when you look at the polls, people say actually equally far away from both on average. When you ask them about particular candidates in this election, they could perceive the Democrats as much more moderate than the Republicans. And so is this a little bit about candidate selection as well, where each party actually has a very, very toxic brand? People perceive sort of the party in general as being very extreme, but particular candidates in this election uh, made very different choices on the Democratic end and the Republican end. I think candidate quality, you know, the, the term of art amongst election watchers played a very, very big role in this election. It's always a factor, of course, particularly in senatorial and gubernatorial elections. It's always a factor. But Trump has made it a much, much bigger factor because he really has made it his mission to judge people on loyalty and nothing else, and therefore began this ever-escalating bidding war to see who can be more cartoonishly loyal than the next character. And that has been getting worse. And therefore, the candidate quality has been getting worse. And so I think you know it's caused immense frustration um, amongst the Mitch McConnells of this world and other senior Republican leaders, immense frustration when somebody like Herschel Walker is the Republican nominee in Georgia, or Doug Mastriano in Pennsylvania, because they know midterm politics, they know congressional politics, they know voters at that level a lot better than Trump does. But their interests aren't the same. Trump's interest is not the same as the more conventional Republican experienced elected officials. That's why I think the variegation of the results on Tuesday, it wasn't a triumph by any objective measure for Biden. It was a triumph in terms of the supposed Japanese bullet train that was heading at him at 300 miles an hour that he dodged. It's what didn't happen that was a triumph. It was really a relief of gargantuan scale for his administration and for him personally. But the most important thing here is the damage it's done to Trump, but not enough damage to stop him from quite possibly being the Republican nominee again. And the polls show that, you know, he's still by far the favorite. He's polling about 50% amongst registered Republicans. And DeSantis is about half that. Now that might change. And, you know, if you were going to be Machiavellian about this, and the Democrats are no strangers to being Machiavellian, including in this cycle, where they did fund the primary campaigns of people like Dan Cox, the Trumpian gubernatorial candidate for Maryland, who lost very badly also, by the way. They funded a number of seven or eight very prominent Trumpian candidates in the primaries to help them get the nomination to make them unelectable. And they did lose. So, you know, if you're going to be Machiavellian, you would want Trump to be the nominee in 2024. It's an extremely high risk Machiavellianism. But I'd say, optimally, from a very cold, logical point of view, Trump being damaged, but not out, is pretty much where you would want the situation to be right now, if you were a Democrat. Just to clarify, I think I agree with what you're saying, but under very specific conditions. So look, I think certainly if these elections show very clearly that somebody like Ron DeSantis has a much, much, much higher chance of winning the 2024 elections conditional on being the Republican nominee compared to Donald Trump's chances of winning the 2024 elections conditional on 
being the nominee. One of the big questions is whether Republican primary voters are going to get that message and agree with that and vote with their partisan interest or whether they're you know, going to go continue being loyal to the OG pugilant populist. Now, you know, how to think about this, of course, depends on your order of priorities. It seems to me very clear that Donald Trump is not a unique danger to democracy in the sense that there are many other dangers authoritarian populists around the world. And uh, it is very easy to imagine a successor to Trump who's equally dangerous or perhaps even more dangerous because they're more competent, but certainly much more dangerous at this point than Ron DeSantis is. And so I think if you're talking purely in terms of the Democratic Party trying to retain the White House at whatever cost, it would be well advised to boost Trump in any way it can. If you're talking about the values which I think should animate people to be members of a Democratic Party. If you're talking about the broader public good and interest of a country, it would be a shameful mistake to help Trump win the primaries in 2024, as it was a shameful mistake to help Doug Mastriano secure the nomination of a Republican Party for governor in Pennsylvania, even though the gamble has turned up heads, even though, as was perhaps likely, you know, the gamble paid off this time. The problem is, one day the gamble is not going to pay off, and that is a risk that, that I find it immoral to take. I suppose if you were going to defend the Machiavellianism, and by the way, I share your principle response to this, uh, as well as your pragmatic warnings, but I suppose the response to this is, well, look, DeSantis is actually a bigger danger, not just to Biden, but to any Democratic nominee in 2024, because he's young, he's not sort of capriciously offensive, he's not sort of personally mean in the way Trump is. He appears to be competent, i.e. to have plans that he then executes. He's not the kind of person you imagine will suddenly think, oh, I'm going to call Kim Jong-un and, and he loves me. And he just is slightly more predictable than Trump, but he's ideologically just the same. His ambition is not to go back to the Republican Party before Trump or before Gingrich and date when he will, the sort of current pathology on the right. He is auditioning, I think increasingly obviously, to be leader of the MAGA movement. And the MAGA movement, I don't believe, is going anywhere. So you could argue that DeSantis is the nominee, but the MAGA nominee, the Victor Orban admirer nominee, the man who's prepared to use the state, the offices, the tools, the arms of the state in Florida to punish businesses that disagree with his cultural agenda and reward those that agree with it to really mess with election rights by setting up a roving police unit that was on the hunt, turning up here and there at different polling stations, looking for fake voters, intimidating actual ones, that you could make the case that DeSantis is actually a more dreadful prospect than Trump. But I entirely agree with the premise of your question and the principle point that you just made. I think it's right on principle and on pragmatic grounds. Let's get into DeSantis for a moment, because I think a number of people have observed quite rightly that DeSantis was in some ways the biggest winner of this election. Biden and the Democrats survived the election much better than anticipated. If they somehow eke out a majority in the House of Representatives, as is still possible at the point of recording, then they would be the big winners. But assuming that they lose control of the House and hang on in the Senate, uh, they will have done very honorably, better than expected, uh, better than uh, most incumbent parties in the midterms, but they wouldn't be winners. DeSantis would be 
the winner because in an election which Republicans underperformed, in which they did less well than anticipated basically throughout the country, with the possible exception of the state of New York, DeSantis triumphed in Florida by nearly a 20-point margin, taking a clear majority of Miami-Dade. So he, in some sense, looks at this moment like the future of Republican politics, whether or not he secures the 2024 nomination. So I think it's worth double-clicking on this and wondering about it. And I have to say that I'm a little bit torn on this question you were just talking about. There's certainly many things about Ron DeSantis that I dislike. There's certainly many policies he has taken that I even consider to uh, break the kind of norms that I think governors of large states in the United States should listen to. I'm also a little bit concerned about the inevitable rush to say, not only is Trump absolutely terrible, but any successor of him is going to be terrible too. And in the end, DeSantis is an even bigger threat than Trump. I have to say that I've read a number of articles making that case that I found to be sloppy, unconvincing, and quite dangerous because the argument about the stability of democracy needs to be deployed genuinely and with care. If you start to say that anybody whose policies you deeply dislike is an enemy of democracy, people will rightly start to tune the rhetoric of people like me who really are concerned about the stability of democracy out. So talk me through with a level head why we should be scared about Ron DeSantis, not in terms of he'll pass this policy we'll dislike and he'll do that, which will be unpleasant, but as a potential threat to the American Republic in the kind of way that I know you and I agree Donald Trump was and remains, if he gets reelected, a threat to the American Republic. Well, I would start with the fact that any ambitious Republican has got to say, look, Trump's ideas were right, the movement is right, but he himself is now too imperfect, a divisive, kind of a boomerang to be the standard bearer of the movement. And therefore, an ambitious Republican, and there's nobody more ambitious than Ron DeSantis, and there's nobody more effective at executing their ambition than him. I can think of others like Tom Cotton and Josh Hawley, who are way, way cruder and openly flirt with white nationalism. Ron DeSantis hasn't done that. And it might be because he, on principle, thinks that that's wrong. I don't think that's the reason. I think the reason is he's more sophisticated as a tactician, which is something, you know, to admire in a democracy, in your opponents. What concerns me, I suppose, is the degree to which he has become popular because of his cultural conservatism and his use of God. I don't know whether you saw the eighth day advertisement he put out a couple of days before the election that on the eighth day, God made a fighter, and that's Ron DeSantis. And it was unironically presenting himself as an instrument of divine will. And it's quite clear that the evangelical church, the judicial sort of conservative circles, the Federalist Society types, this is sort of manna from heaven to them, to have a young candidate with kids, and he's always pictured with his kids, talking God in the way he talks God, in the way, of course, Trump could only do instrumentally. This guy can do with apparent sincerity and with really quite terrifying sincerity to judge by that ad. That would concern me. I guess I would be less concerned weird foreign policy implications from a DeSantis presidency. The unpredictability, as I was saying earlier, just the sort of tendency to fly off on a handle, to love autocrats and hate various Democrats and then change his mind. You know, DeSantis seems to be a more even-keeled, strategic-minded person. I would also have one other caveat, which is, look, 
we've had coming men in both parties, men uh, for the most part. The last two I can think of who fizzled, you know, pretty quickly were Marco Rubio, who after, you know, the 2012 election became the great new thing. And it was assumed for quite a while he would be the Republican nominee in 2016 until Trump came down that escalator. And the other was Scott Walker, who was really the libertarian Tea Party darling. Both sort of completely flunked um, the sort of broader Kleeglite test. And Ron DeSantis just doesn't seem to have much charisma. He seems to be a very effective governor, but he doesn't seem to have the retail skills. And so we might be talking about him in the same way three or four years from now that we talked about Rubio after he flunked out. I cannot agree with you more that this sort of Pavlovian tendency to say any Republican is just as bad as Trump is a sort of horribly polarizing instinct amongst Democrats. And it's also to some degree self-fulfilling because it pushes the Republican Party further into this sort of cynical, well, if they think about that about us, whatever we do, we're going to give you that. And so I think in general, I agree with the point you're making. And we don't know enough about DeSantis to stand up the argument that he's as bad as Trump. I'm just sort of pointing out various worrying indicators. Yeah, and I think uh, in retrospect, it was a real mistake. And it is honor to treat Mitt Romney in 2012 as a kind of racist who was going to put people back in chains and so on. And there was a lot of rhetoric in that election, which... I mean, really wasn't fair to Romney and was proven to be wrong in how, for all of his flaws and shortcomings, he uh, turned out to be very courageous during the Trump years. Let's focus a little bit on the side of the Democrats. I have a question about the election in, in Georgia, or perhaps a theory about it, and I'd love to hear your response to it. Uh, so Georgia was one of the states in which we saw this very big divergence in the performance of Republican candidates. Brian Kemp, who uh, had uh, stood up for the integrity of elections in 2020 against Trump's pressure, uh, survived a very nasty primary challenge fueled by attacks from Trump, won election against Stacey Abrams quite convincingly. Herschel Walker, the Republican nominee for Senate in Georgia, is going to go to a runoff to Raphael Warnock, but did much less well than Brian Kemp. Now, I think there's two obvious reasons for that, which is that Kemp is much more moderate than Walker and emphasized the importance of respecting the outcome of elections. Walker was a election denier and somebody with very deep personal scandals and overall issues, as Mitch McConnell would say, on candidate quality. I wonder for whether there's also a contrast to be drawn between the two Democratic candidates in that race. Now, to be clear, neither of those candidates is in any way to be compared to Herschel Walker. They're both much more reasonable and moderate than that. But I think that it was an interesting contrast between Stacey Abrams, who has argued in the pages of Foreign Affairs and other places as a real matter of intellectual conviction that the Democratic Party should be in the business of identity politics, and in particular in the business of mobilizing its traditional electorate, which is to say, in her casting, non-white voters, Latinos and African-Americans and so on, bringing them to the polls, and that should be the core of a Democratic Party strategy. And indeed, that's what you focused on in this election, going so far as to dismiss concerns about black men not being very keen on her candidacy by saying that, you know, they're subject to a lot of misinformation, basically dismissing 
perhaps the distance between her very progressive social policies and the views of many black men in Georgia. Raphael Warnock, another African-American candidate for Senate, took a very different stance, emphasizing his past profession as a pastor, you know, going all around the state, speaking even in very, very white counties of Georgia that aren't very uh, hospitable to Democrats traditionally, uh, but trying to uh, appeal to people there, recording a very funny ad in which he's on a peanut farm in a kind of contraption with peanuts raining down on him from the top, you know, talking about how he fought for Georgian peanut farmers by teaming up with a deeply conservative Republican senator and repeating the line, that's nuts. Do you think that one way to look at Georgia is Kemp is a much better candidate than Walker, for sure. What role do you think did it play that Warnock arguably had the better strategy and was a better candidate than Abrams? It's a very good question because, of course, it has broader sort of implications beyond Georgia. I think the turnout model that Stacey Abrams, the registration drives that she's had in Georgia over a period of many years, of course, is a very, very good thing. And you need to win over people who don't vote, infuse them about politics. And she's, for obvious reasons, particularly good at doing that in African-American communities. Beyond that, not just African-American communities, African-American communities in the South. And I don't think it's conceivable. I think there were sort of two big reasons why the last time around, on January the 5th, 2021, the two Democrats won those runoffs, Ossoff and Warnock. One was the turnout model. The registration had gone way up. Um, and that's because of Stacey Abrams. It was incredibly effective. And the other was because Trump just kept casting doubt on whether anything would change regardless of what you voted. So Trump was, you know, self-detonating or at least detonating Republican prospects. But there are limits to it. The notion that all these very real attempts to suppress the vote or to make it harder to register to vote actually changes elections is not that strongly supported by data. It's hard to find actual elections that were changed other than perhaps Stacey Abrams' own previous failed electoral bid in Georgia. It's hard to find elections that have actually been changed by voter suppression. Is there very clear evidence of that having happened four years ago? And my understanding is that a lot of the case that brought Stacey Abrams to repeatedly deny having lost that election in a way that, frankly, I think is deeply problematic in itself, intrinsically, and deeply problematic as long as she was the face of democracy efforts for a party that is rightly slamming Donald Trump for refusing to acknowledge the outcome of elections. And it seems to me that the case, insofar as it existed, was a sort of vibes case, that it was really unfortunate that in Georgia in 2018, Brian Kemp was the Secretary of State responsible for administering the election, as well as a candidate for governor at the same time. Now, of course, that is the exact argument that Carrie Lake is starting to run in Arizona, saying, how can it be that Katie Hobbs is the Secretary of State responsible for administering these elections, and at the same time, she's a candidate for governor? I think it is shameful when Carrie Lake is using that to justify not conceding the election. And despite some voter suppression efforts that did exist in Georgia in 2018, that habitually exist in American politics, that are a deep problem, I think it's shameful that Stacey Abrams refused to acknowledge the outcome of an election for many years. 
Yeah, I think I agree with you. And the only thing that gives me pause is I didn't go into the same kind of detail into that 2018 election and her allegations that I've gone into the self-evidently fraudulent allegations around 2020. And that's my failing. You know, I just didn't invest the time. But from what I understand from quite a lot of independent election expert figures who did invest the time, yeah, this was way overblown. And her saying it was a stolen election, essentially, that therefore Brian Kemp was an invalid and an illegitimate governor. It sets a very, very bad precedent. It provides an instant whataboutist argument to the Kerry Lakes of this world and the Trumps of this world when they try to do something similar. But again, I don't want to you know, set off any tripwires here because I'm not as steeped in the 2018 Georgia election as I am in others. Raphael Warnock is kind of your dream candidate. He's principled. He's smart. He is prepared to do deals with the other side. He doesn't personalize things. And you would want to see him re-elected. It is a sort of weird irony of of the electoral system here that it might well boil down yet again to a runoff in Georgia, whether the Democrats get to 50-50 in the Senate. Maybe it won't. It's conceivable Dems could get to 51. But if it does rest on Georgia on December the 6th, then I think we're going to see an incredibly different election than if it doesn't. If it doesn't, then it doesn't. And, you know, it's nice to have 51, but it's not life or death. If, on the other hand, it's the decisive runoff yet again, then we're going to have sort of two questions here. One is, how good is the Democratic machine and how good is the Republican machine? And two, can the Republicans keep Trump out of it this time? And I don't really know the answer to either of those questions, but I suspect Warnock, if it becomes a national federalized election, would win it. Looking ahead to 2024, What lessons do you think Democrats should take from this election about which candidate to run and what message that candidate should run on? If you're going to find a positive sort of sociological trend from Trumpism, electropsychological trend from Trumpism, the fact that non-whites are moving to the Republican Party is a good thing. It deracializes the divisions between the parties. Um, The fact that Hispanics are moving not just in Florida, but across the country, to the Republican Party, even one led by Trump, or maybe, you know, there are lots of different motivations, especially one led by Trump, depending on which Hispanic you ask. And even African Americans, to some degree, have been moving more to the Republican Party. I think it's a good thing. Now, 99 out of 100 of my liberal friends would um, be horrified at, at having heard that. But to the degree that there's an overlap and d- indeed a mapping between polarization and racial racialization, th- there is a greater risk to the stability of America. So this, to me, reduces some of the temperature. Um, Democrats have to understand that there's no such thing as a Hispanic. Hispanics are a figment of their imagination. There are lots of different groups that we, outside of that world, classify as Hispanics, but legal immigrants from the Dominican Republic, refugees from Venezuela, documented and undocumented um, immigrants from Mexico, living on the border or living in Minnesota, the Canadian border. I mean, these all have incredibly different backgrounds in terms of being Spanish speakers or not, as the case may be, but very similar interests to most Americans who find that a lot of them are quite naturally patriotic types. 
they might be feeling precarious economically, and therefore inflation might matter a lot to them. But they're quite comfortable with the flag and quite uncomfortable, I think, with a number of signals you're getting from the more sort of left element of the Democratic Party. A, that we're some special group that needs to be catered to and that we're obsessed with the border. B, that, you know, we're Latinx, Latinx, and see that somehow that means that all the other stuff doesn't matter that much. But also that American patriotism isn't that good a thing. We should sign up to a view that really this is a flawed nation. It's structurally irredeemable nation. It doesn't really, I think, appeal to most Spanish-speaking. It's naturally not a very appealing thing to say to people who have chosen to immigrate to a country. Now, that's obviously not true of all Latinos. Many Latinos have been in the country, have ancestors who've been in the country for a very long time. Many Latinos literally stayed on the same land and the nationality of the land changed. But for many of them, they have immigrated or they have parents who have immigrated. And to tell them, why on earth have you chosen to immigrate to the worst country on earth is actually quite tone deaf. That is obviously not how people feel about the country that they have chosen to move to. I think the other point here that I want to echo uh, you on, or perhaps add a further dimension of complication, is that even when you look at legal immigrants from Mexico, from the same city perhaps, living in the same part of a the country, there's a very important distinction that's a racial one. Right? Latin American societies have very complicated and often quite nasty racial politics, depending on whether people are predominantly descended from European immigrants to those societies or whether they're predominantly indigenous. And of course, the taped conversation of a president of the Los Angeles City Council, now departed from that office, was an indication of that. The most offensive thing she said, she said many offensive things, but the most offensive things was a very traditional expression of racial prejudice from more white Latinos towards less white Latinos. And here's another area where sort of this attempt to pretend that they're all the same and therefore will naturally become a coalition of quote-unquote people of color is simply naive about what those political cleavages look like. Yeah, it is. And so I, I very much hope that lesson gets taken on board. I suspect it won't be because Tuesday night wasn't a disaster. I mean, it was in Florida, for sure. And there were huge mistakes there on the Republican side, too. I mean, DeSantis luring a bunch of immigrants, refugees, in fact, from Texas to Florida in order to pull off this stunt of sending them to Martha's Vineyard. The obvious thing the Democrats should have said is these are refugees from socialism. These are refugees from Venezuela. It's like, and you call yourself an anti-socialist? You're making victims double victims. But I don't think there is the mindset in the Democratic Party to make that kind of differentiation. There is just refugees and Hispanics. And it, it sinks in these sort of grand identity abstract blocks in ways that are increasingly counterproductive. But because the Democrats did pretty well this week. I suspect that they're not going to revisit first principles on that. I would say, though, that even though he lost, Tim Ryan's campaign, I think, was a model campaign in a state that, like Ohio, like Florida, is now sort of written off as a red state. He came within seven points of J.D. Vance in a state where the gubernatorial race, the Republican Mike DeWine, won by 26 percentage points. That was a close race because he very, very clearly eschewed identity politics and spoke to what 
what blue collar people and ordinary hardworking Americans have in common. And that resonated. And the fact that he lost, you know, should not, I think, lessen the force of that campaign as an example that I think would work in many parts of the country. Ed Luce, thank you so much. It's a delight, Yasha, as always. Thank you so much for listening to The Good Fight. Lots of listeners have been spreading the word about the show. If you too have been enjoying the podcast, please be like, rate the show on iTunes, tell your friends all about it, share it on Facebook or Twitter. And finally, please mail suggestions for great guests or comments about the show to goodfightpod at gmail.com. That's goodfightpod at gmail.com. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Thanks to Silent Partner for their song, Chess Pieces. Thank you.